our church believes that the scriptures are the word of God. That we can know God through his spirit as we hear and respond to his word in faith. Not everyone believes that. And if you are here today and you don't believe that, we welcome you and we are glad that you're here. Part of the reason many people have trouble believing that is that within the scriptures, there are things that are troubling. And so it's somewhat understandable that not everyone believes that the Bible is the word of God. And this morning, we are going to look at one of those things. Why does God kill the firstborn in Egypt? Why death? Up until this point in Exodus, and we've been going through there right from chapter 1 all the way through to now, today we are in in chapter 11. Up until this point, it may seem easy to cheer as God punishes Egypt for their brutal enslavement and murder of the Hebrew people. It's easy to see his justice as the plagues slowly move up in severity. But with this last plague, a lot of people, even Christians, might want to say that God goes too far. We sing songs like, Good, good father that has a line, you are perfect in all your ways. Can you sing that line and read Exodus chapters 11 and 12 and maintain that God is perfect in all of his ways when he kills the firstborn in Egypt? I believe the reality is this. In this last plague, in the death of the firstborn, we see with crystal clarity The seriousness of sin. The Bible says that sin leads to death, and that is what we see here. Not only that, but this plague helps us understand why the Son of God had to die in our place if we were to be redeemed. And our hearts should be moved to worship the God who gave His own Son for us. This morning... I want to look in detail at the scriptures at Exodus chapter 11 and the first part of chapter 12 to see exactly what they say about this plague. And I want to encourage you that God's great justice and love are perfect. He is perfect in all his ways. And you can trust the word of God even when it seems troubling. So my goal in this sermon is to do three things. Number one, I want to show that death is a necessary and just punishment for sin. Number two, I want to show that Jesus' death is an awesome gift. And then number three, I want all of us to think of what we should be doing in response to it. And so for the first part, we're going to look at Exodus very carefully. And I would encourage you to turn to Exodus now with me and follow along. And I'm going to be in Exodus Chapter 11, in the Blue Bibles, this is on page 53. It's right at the beginning of the Bible. And I'm going to read at first, just the first three verses. And I have two points in, the, in this sermon, and then a number of sub-points. And the first point is judgment on Egypt. We will look at the judgment on Egypt. And first, we're going to see God's instructions to Moses 
as he begins to explain his plan to finally deliver his people. So to begin with, let's look at the first three verses of chapter 11. The Lord said to Moses, Yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. And when he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. God is demonstrating, as he has all along, that he is completely in control of the situation in Egypt. He is telling Moses exactly how this conflict will end, and he prepares the people of Israel for leaving by telling them to ask their neighbors for gold and jewelry. And you might think of this as payment for 400 years of unpaid labor. And it was willfully given because God gave the people favor in the eyes of the Egyptians. In this moment of revelation, as Moses still stands before Pharaoh, so you remember the end of chapter 10, as he is standing before Pharaoh, and Pharaoh has asked him for relief, confessed his sin, Moses is still standing before Pharaoh, and in a moment of revelation, God describes this plague, and Moses finishes his last conversation with Pharaoh. Look with me at verses 4 through 10, and we'll see the death of the son. So Moses said, thus says the Lord, about midnight, I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on the throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that, I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. And Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh. And the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. This is not the first time God has said that he will do this in taking the firstborn son from Pharaoh and from all of Egypt. In chapter 4, verse 22, as Moses was on his way back to Egypt, after God had called him and commissioned him and revealed his name, God instructs him. He says, tell Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you do not let my son go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. But that's not where God began the plagues. God demonstrated his patience by giving Pharaoh multiple warnings and signs to verify his word. And at every step of the way, Pharaoh remained hardened in disobedience. God showed his complete control over the entire earth by showing all of Egypt's idols to be false and powerless through each of the nine plagues leading up to this final plague. And now, the time has come for God's great judgment on Egypt. And because Pharaoh still refuses God, he loses 
His firstborn Son. If you meditate on this and think of it deeply, I believe this story will break your heart and I believe it should. The Scripture says that everyone in Egypt had someone die in their household all the way down to the slave girl who worked on a handmill. And if you have ever lost a child, you know the pain that they felt. And you can see the anguish that comes from this cry that goes up from Egypt. And it's easy in this moment of good meditation to accuse God of being unjust. But there are at least two things to remember. So let me give you both of them. First, Pastor Philip Ryken points out, this cry that goes up from Egypt is the same cry that went up from the Hebrews as they suffered and prayed that God would deliver them. So there is justice in this punishment. You might object saying that God is gracious and loving, and He is. But if you reject His grace, there is nothing left but justice. And God's punishment is to bring on the Egyptians the same suffering that His people experienced through the Egyptians. God says he will not leave the guilty unpunished. And without receiving his grace, that punishment is just as terrible as all of our crimes. The Egyptians have slaughtered the Hebrews' children, and now they are experiencing the death of their children. So the first thing to remember when thinking about God's justice is that the punishment does fit the crime. Second, the scripture says, God is the one who gives life. And it is His to take as His will. One day, all of us will die. All of us need to be ready for that time. God is not unjust to call anyone home at any time. He has given us our life, and it is His to take as He will. On a deep emotional level, what happens in Egypt clearly teaches us How devastating pride and idolatry is. I know for myself, I often have trouble believing that my sin is really that serious. But the death of the firstborn forces us to recognize just how serious sin is. And it forces us to recognize that our sin hurts more than each of us. Some people justify their sin and disobedience to God by saying, I'm only hurting myself. But that's never true. Your sin will kill everything you love. And one way to see that this is true even today is to think of the way that generational sins still work. In small things and in big things. You might think a dad who smokes will often have kids who smoke. And obviously they both run the risk of dying of cancer. Alcoholic abusive parents often have alcoholic abusive kids. You teach your kids your sins, whether you mean to or not. Workaholic materialistic parents raise workaholic materialistic kids. And the sins that will kill you are very often learned by your children and they will kill them too. So in a very real way, your sins have the potential to bring judgment on your children. Normally, 
Those types of judgment are slow and take time. But here in Exodus, that judgment takes place in just a moment. And it's worth noticing that God does not actually play favorites in this last plague. He's not sparing Israel because they're a good and an innocent people. The scripture teaches that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. This is a just and a fair punishment on sin. And for Israel to be saved, they must obey God's exact instructions. And I hope that I've demonstrated that this judgment is necessary because it is just. And God is absolutely just. And I'll say a little bit more about this at the end of the message as we look at the Passover lamb. And then we look at God's perfect lamb. But first, let's look at God's salvation for Israel and recognize that he is not playing favorites. Their redemption at this point depends on a substitute. So my second point for this morning is the salvation for Israel. And first, we're going to look at the death of the lamb in verses 1 through 13 of chapter 12. Follow along with me. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened and your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. God says as he judges Egypt, he will go through the land in his wrath with the intention of killing the firstborn. And in order for Israel to be saved from God's wrath, they must kill a perfect lamb and put its blood on the doorposts of their houses. And God said, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. The lamb was clearly intended to represent the family. God told them, select a lamb that would be sufficient for everyone in the household. And it needed to be a perfect lamb. In order for them to live, the lamb had to die. Something innocent was taking the place of people who deserved God's judgment. And in this moment of judgment, Israel would be delivered. 
And Israel was told to remember this moment forever, not only by making this a perpetual ritual, but also by observing the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So look with me at verses 14 through 20, and we'll see the week-long feast. The day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations, as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses, for if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days. But what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for on this very day I brought your host out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In the first month, from the fourteenth day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the twenty-first day of the month at evening. For seven days, no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel. Whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land, you shall eat nothing leavened. In all your dwelling places, you shall eat unleavened bread. Leaven is somewhat like yeast. It's a, it's a piece of dough that has fermented. And in order for bread to rise, you take that little piece of dough from a previous batch that you save and you mix it in a new batch of dough so that it rises and becomes soft. And God says, in order to remember this moment of deliverance, when God brings them out, they need to cleanse their houses of leaven and they need to observe a week-long feast where they eat no leaven whatsoever he is incredibly strict about this point he says if anyone eats something leavened they will be cut off from the people of israel now pastor alec matir points out that while the new testament teaches us leaven can in places represent sin the bible doesn't say that here it would be easy to say that God is showing the Israelites the importance of living pure lives as his people. So he's saying, remember to remove the sin from your life as you are my people. But that's not what he does in this moment of redemption. Later in Exodus, God will teach them about obedience and purity. But right now, this is a moment of redemption where they rest in his work. So what is the purpose of this feast? Why is he telling them to observe a feast of unleavened bread? The reality is, he is making them a new people. You can see the purpose of this in verse 17. So let me read just that verse again. He says, you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. Why? For on this very day, I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. They are to remember that God brought them out. He made something new. They are God's people. They won't be thought of as Egyptian refugees. They won't be thought of as former Egyptians that became a new people. They'll be thought of as people who belong to the Lord, who were redeemed by His power. And so they are not to contaminate themselves with anything old that's left over, they are to be God's people. 
And I think it's also significant that they are specifically told they are to do no work as part of this feast. God even specifies this includes meal prep. You are to only make as much food as you need day by day. And I think the point of that is they are reliant on God entirely for their redemption day by day. God is saving not a strong people who are able to save themselves, but a weak people who must depend on him. And the Exodus is the story of how God redeems his people. And God gives them this feast to remind them that they are completely dependent on him and they need to continue to rest in him for every generation as every generation is made new and relies on the God that brought them out of Egypt. So there are two parts of the salvation that God shows here in Exodus. The death of the lamb that saves them from wrath and being brought out of the land that made them into God's people. Salvation is not just being saved from God's wrath. Salvation is also becoming the people of God. And it's the same way with Christians. We are not only saved from judgment because Jesus died for us, but we are made into God's new people. And that's why Paul does use this method, this image of leaven and tells the Corinthians to clean the leaven of impurity out of their lives because their life before Christ should have nothing to do with their life in Christ. So God described the two parts of his redemption to Moses, and then Moses instructs the elders of Israel so that they together lead the people in obedience. Look with me, and this is a little bit repetitive, but this is how the people learned obedience through the leaders that were established in their community. So look with me at verses 21 through 27 and see the elders instructed. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians and when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, The Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this right as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you as he promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel and Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. Notice the command to observe this rite perpetually. This is commanded multiple times that it must be remembered and taught to every generation. I mentioned a few moments ago that very often our children learn our sins from us. And our sins can result in the judgment of our children. But the reverse is also true. Now grace depends on God. But your children can learn repentance as they see you repent. Which is a serious and a somber thing. Because if your children never see you repent, they will not know that you seek the Lord for the forgiveness of your sins. If your relationship with God is something private, and you don't share it with your children beyond just dragging them to church on Sunday, 
If they don't see you maintaining a relationship with the Lord, they will not know that you are depending on God for grace and forgiveness. So the elders are instructed to show the people how to keep the feast of Passover, how to, how to slay the lamb, how to put its blood on the doorpost. And then the families are instructed to teach their children forever for the next generation and the one after that, that this is how we are saved from the judgment of God. And you see finally in our text in Exodus today, the very last sentence of, of verse 27, which I didn't read, you see the people respond. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. The people bowed their heads and worshipped. This is the second time in Exodus that the people have responded to the word of Moses through worshiping the one true God. The first time is when they hear that God has sent Moses. They are so grateful that their prayers have finally been heard. They respond in worship that God has sent them a deliverer. But then, as their suffering is intensified, they wrestle with whether or not God has truly sent Moses. And it says that they actually could not believe because of the bitterness of their slavery. But God is faithful and true. And through the plagues, his people have seen his power. And now, before the tenth plague, before God brings them out, they believe and they worship him in faith that he will do all he has said. Now, as we think about Exodus, we don't observe Passover anymore. We don't kill lambs at our church. How do we think through how to apply this as New Testament believers? And so just like I've done with the past few sermons, my intention is now to show how Exodus relates to us as Christians. And so I want to look at this idea here from Exodus from the perspective of a believer in Jesus. And I've mentioned in the past what Paul said in Corinthians. He said, people in the Old Testament looked to Christ, but they didn't know his name yet. They just looked to the God who one day would reveal himself in Christ. And they responded in obedience and faith. Paul says that these Old Testament saints in Exodus depended on Jesus. And so as we look at the Passover lamb that's described here, that allows the Israelites to be spared the wrath of God. We've already heard Isaiah 53 read in our scripture reading this morning. We know how Messiah was slaughtered like a lamb for our sins. And so I want to tie that together with what we've seen in Exodus, that either a lamb is sacrificed or the death angel will come. And I want to look at what the death of Christ means for us. And to do that, I want to encourage you to turn over to the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. If you have one of the blue ESV Bibles. That are found in the chairs. I can give you the exact page number. For where this is. But Hebrews. And we're going to see a few verses from chapter 9. And a few verses from chapter 10. In the blue Bibles. This is page 1006. And I believe in the red large print. It's 1183. Did I, did I get that right Kim? Okay, 1192 if you have one of the large print. The book of Hebrews 
is written because some early Christians wanted to go back to a system of sacrifices. They learned and understood the Passover. They learned and understood the different ritual sacrifices that God instructed them to make throughout the year. And so after they'd come to Christ, they wanted to continue that. And the writer of Hebrews shows how the work of Christ is infinitely greater than the sacrifices that the Old Testament saints offered in faith. So as we read about what the Israelites did in sacrificing a lamb, I have never had to slaughter an animal at close terms. It's a violent and bloody, messy affair. And if you have any sympathy and compassion for animals, it's a terrible thing to have to do. The reality is, that sacrifice should help us look at the sacrifice of Christ with incredibly sobering clarity and recognize that His death is infinitely greater. And So I want to point you to a few verses from Hebrews that show how our salvation was accomplished by the death of God's perfect Lamb, Jesus Christ. And then I want to point you to what the writer of Hebrews says you and I should do as a result. So first, Hebrews chapter 9, I want to point you to verse 12. And I'm just going to read a few of these. If you have questions about this sermon, I would encourage you to read these two chapters carefully on your own. But for the sake of time, I'm going to point you to about a half a dozen verses. And I'll say a few things towards the end. So first, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 12, describes how Jesus in his ministry as high priest entered into, into the holy place once and for all into the holy places, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Because Jesus is God and is infinite, his blood is infinitely greater than the blood of a bull or a goat or a lamb. His redemption is not temporary, And doesn't need to be done every single year. His redemption is eternal. Verse 14 shows how he offered himself without blemish to God. So our conscience can be purified from dead works to serve the living God. Look with me at verse 14. He said, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Remember, the Israelites are saved to worship. We are also saved to worship. And the purpose of our salvation is so that we can serve the living God in purity. Then verse 22 reminds us that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. You might ask, is this sacrifice necessary? This seems extreme, and it does, and it is. But look at verse 22. It says, indeed, Under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Chapter 10, verse 4, shows us why we need a greater sacrifice. So look at chapter 10, verse 4. It says, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. We cannot be forgiven because of a bull or a goat. And verse 10 of chapter 10 shows that Jesus' sacrifice is once and for all. So look with me at verse 10. He says, By that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. And notice verse 18, Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering 
for sin. Do you have a guilt complex? A lot of Christians do. Realize if you are trusting in Jesus, there is no reason for you to feel guilty for past sins before God. Our Lamb, Jesus Christ, saved us from the wrath of God by His precious blood and perfect, eternal sacrifice. If you don't believe that today, let me remind you of the wrath of God that was poured out on Egypt and warn you that His judgment is coming. But if you do believe that, the writer of Hebrews gives us three applications. And I want to end this message with the three applications that are found right in our text today. Remember, 9.14, we are purified from dead works. Why? To serve the living God. If you've been purified, how are you serving Him? If you are not serving Him, there is a chance that you have not actually been saved. Because that salvation will always move you to worship. Just like the people worshipped God by obeying Him and offering the Passover lamb. Remember Exodus 12, 27. We are to worship God through the instructions He has given us. There's a real temptation to say, do I really need to obey God? If Jesus offered this great sacrifice for me, what does my obedience have to do with it? And I think we ask that question for ourselves, and I think sometimes Christian parents ask that question on behalf of their children even more. Because it's easy to point to a childhood conversion and say, my kid believes he's fine. Does he really need to follow the Lord in obedience? Does that really matter? But the scripture makes it clear. If your sacrifice is not followed by heartfelt worship that shows itself through obedience, then you are not worshiping God and you may not know the Lord. And we must not deceive ourselves. The worship is critical. And so that's why the first application that I want to point you to, verse 22 of chapter 10 says, Let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So the two-word summaries, draw near, draw near to God. You have access to God because your sins have been washed away. You can come into His presence through prayer. Draw near to Him in praise. Talk to Him about everything. Seek Him personally, knowing He will welcome you because your sins are forgiven. And that's why the second command of the writer of Hebrews is hold fast. Hold fast. So look at verse 23. He says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For He who promises is faithful. There is a temptation to going back to proving your worth to God because you're a good person. God, I've done all of these things. I've been in church my whole life, however long that is. I've gone on missions trips. I give to the church. I'm a good person. Even for Christians, it seems like we can come to God and say, Lord, you should listen to my prayers a little bit more because I am a good Christian. There is a temptation to going back to proving your worth to God by being a good person. But the whole point of faith in Christ is that you aren't a good person. And I'm not either. Only Christ is. Hold fast to Jesus and be faithful 
to rest in the finished work of Christ. Just like in the feast that they observe, they do no work. The whole point is, God has done the work for you. Hold fast to the work that He has done in Christ. Be faithful to rest in the finished work of Christ. Because if you try to obey apart from Him, your obedience is worthless. It does not merit you anything. Obedience without faith cannot atone for sins. Faith without obedience is not real faith at all. Only faith that obeys in worship is saving faith. And that's why the final application that the writer of Hebrews gives is stir up one another to love and good works. Stir up one another to love and good works. You can see it in verses 24 and 25. He says, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more, as you see the day, Drawing near. The order of these applications is really critical. Draw near to Christ first for the forgiveness of your sins. Hold fast to his sacrifice, understanding that you are forgiven before God based on what he did for you. Moment for moment, it doesn't matter how long you've been saved. Hold fast to the sacrifice of Christ. That's why we remember his sacrifice the first Sunday of every month in communion. We are holding fast to his sacrifice for each of us. And as the people of God, stir up each other to love and good works. I remember I have very often heard verse 25 of chapter 10 being used to say, you got to go to church. The Bible commands you to go to church. And it's true. That's what that verse says. But the purpose of going to church is to encourage one another for loving good deeds. Can I ask you where you're at this morning? For each of those applications, are are you confident that your sins are covered by the blood of Jesus? Have you drawn near to God? Have you been cleansed and washed? Have you been redeemed? And if you have been redeemed, are you holding fast Do you worship the Lord because of what he's done for you? Do you remember how precious his sacrifice is? Are you daily resting in Christ and drawing near to God? Do you worship him in your personal life on a daily basis? And I think perhaps most importantly for our church, what are you doing to encourage other believers? Do you spend time with other Christians outside of the service? There is not a lot of time for us to talk to each other while we're here on a Sunday morning. And if the purpose of gathering together is for us to encourage each other to love and good deeds, we have to spend time in real Christian fellowship where we are honest about our relationship with the Lord, where we can pray for each other and encourage each other and serve the Lord together. God didn't save the Israelites as a bunch of individuals that scattered the moment of redemption. He saved them as a people. And he has done that for us as well. We are saved together as his people. So let us be faithful to love one another and encourage each other. And I want to encourage you today. There are some people who attend that don't know people here. Sometimes it's hard to get to know people here. So I want to encourage you as an application for today. It may be easy to think, oh, I'm friends with so-and-so. I'll call her this week and we'll go together and have fellowship and encourage you. That's great. That's good. Do that. But let me encourage you also 
to look for people that you don't know and to recognize that people come here to be part of a fellowship of Christians and we need to be faithful to encourage one another to love and good deeds and to receive encouragement from other Christians. So I want to challenge you today. If you have come to Christ and are trusting him, are you encouraging other Christians here in our church and are you being encouraged by them? And if not, let me challenge you to make a phone call this week to have a meal with someone, to share a cup of coffee, to spend some time in fellowship, perhaps come to one of our, our, our Wednesday night prayer meetings. This week we've got a meal already scheduled, so really there's no excuse. Just come Wednesday and let's spend some time fellowshipping as a church. But make it real Christian fellowship. Make sure that you talk about your faith. Because if we don't share that, we're nothing more than just a club. And all of us need encouragement. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we see your great judgment and wrath in the death of the firstborn. Lord, I pray that our hearts would understand the depth of our sin that requires that kind of judgment. But Lord, we praise you and thank you that we can see your mercy and great love for us in that you gave your own son for us. Father, I ask that you would help us to rest in his perfect sacrifice. And Lord, I pray that you would bless us with an incredible fellowship. That we would be faithful to worship you, that we would be faithful to serve you. I ask that you would help us to be loving and encouraging to one another. And I pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Lord, this is impossible unless you do it in us. I pray this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.